You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Well, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Good. New year. Everybody's excited about New Year. Got a bunch of resolutions that you're going to fail at. That's awesome. Exciting. Well, with a new year, uh, we've got a new series, and this new series is called Unshaken. Now, now why Unshaken? Well, we are going to be diving into the book of 1 Thessalonians, and over the next 17 weeks, we are going to walk through this book and see how the Apostle Paul talks about being unshaken in our faith. I think if we look at the last three years, four years, I mean, we could see that life has proven instability. It's proven brokenness. It has proven uh, just a whirlwind of crazy things. And what we are going to look at is in the midst of affliction, in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness and hurt and instability, God is the foundation on which we stand on, which leaves us unshaken. And so as Paul is writing, one of the things we see is in 1 Thessalonians 3.3. And this is, this is the verse that this comes out of. It speaks about this. He says, the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, this is what establishes us in our faith. Our faith. It is what exhorts us. That word there is encourages us in our faith. That no one may be, what is that word? Moved. That word means unshaken by these afflictions, the craziness of life. And so how do we remain unshaken? It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, good news of great joy for all people, for all of life. This, there's not one area of our lives, there's not one point, not one minute, not one second of our lives where the gospel doesn't apply. I think often we can have our belief um, and our uh, even maybe even call it religion in something that is uh, to do's and being a good person and morality. And we think that a relationship with God has to do with that, that aspect of our life, the, the, the being a good person, the morality. But then there's all the other stuff in life and we don't think that the gospel applies to that, but it does. It applies to every single area of our lives. And in every single area, what does Paul say? That we need to be firm, standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ in all things. And so this letter is from Paul, and it's focused on the Christian life. But I don't want us to mistake this as a series over the next 17 weeks of like three steps to a better you. This is a very practical book. So this is a very practical letter that he has written to the church. And so there's going to be a ton of takeaways for us. But this isn't three steps to a better you. This is us securing our feet on the firm foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And it's through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that our lives will be transformed by the good news of Jesus. Making him the core, him the center, him our everything. And so it is the gospel that establishes and encourages us in our faith and makes us unshakable. We're going to split this uh, letter up into three different parts. So chapters one and two, we're going to look at what it means to be bold in our faith, how to live bold. 
And so in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, we see that this is the encouragement, the promise, the exhortation that Paul gives the church, where he tells them that they are to live bold in their faith. So as we are pressing into the Spirit, as we are growing in our faith, it causes us the ability to live bold in all circumstances. Not just the good circumstances, not just the bad circumstances, but all circumstances that we can live bold in our faith. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we see this theme of overflow. This theme of overflow is as God is pouring into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, that, that it overflows out of us, kind of like a waterfall coming in through this river of water and that flowing over the edge. That's what the world around us should experience is the, the presence of God and the hope of God overflowing out of our lives. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see this theme of awake. What does it mean to be awake in our faith, alive in our faith? And so let's jump in. I'm going to start in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3, and we're going to go verse by verse. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it. If you don't have a Bible, there's a couple things we can do. Um, one, there's an app on your phone that is an amazing app. It should go across all the phones unless you're still running a T9 Nokia. Um, so it is called the YouVersion Bible app. And so you can download it and have every version of the Bible. We primarily use the ESV. Um, version of the Bible, and so you can look it up on your YouVersion Bible app, or we have hardcover Bibles in the back um, at any point. You can get up and use those, or just look on with your neighbor. First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. Let me read this for us. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before, God, before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and we're going to dive in. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace as we come and open up your word together. God, I pray that our lives would be transformed by the beauty of who you are and what you have done for us. God, thank you for this season that we've just come out of, remembering your birth, and I pray as we look towards Easter that we remember that you didn't just come to live, but you also came to die for us on our behalf because you love us. So thank you, Lord, for this time. God, with all the distractions, all the things that are going on around us, um, even just coming into a gloomy day, Lord, I pray that you would be light in the darkness, that you would bring hope for those that are hopeless. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So here's the main idea for today. We are unshaken when we stand on a foundation of the gospel when we live bold in community. This is what we're seeing here in these first three verses. Paul lived in and he also encouraged community. Look at verse one. I mean, automatically, right off the bat, he's like, I'm writing from my people to your people. But it's not just a, a, like a separate thing, it's actually a united thing where he's saying, this is my group of, of people that I have surrounded myself with and, and I'm writing to this larger church family. He sees the people of God as a family unit as brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters and sons, he sees this beautiful community that God has intended for us each to participate in. 
his community writing to the church. This word church there is ekklesia in the Greek. It means a people called out from the world and to God. This is what we call the body of Christ. So if you're ever wondering, like when you come into a church environment and people talk about the body of Christ, like we're talking about the church, the people of God. The church is not this building. The church is the people, are the people that fill the building that fill the streets, that fill the neighborhoods. It is the people of God. And a building cannot confine that. And I think often we can look at the American church and think that the American church is on on the decline. It's the church as a whole is growing exponentially. Why? Because God is at work and he will never be thwarted. And so we don't have to lose hope. We join this morning with millions of people that are professing faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior around the world. Like this isn't just an American religion. Like there are people all over the world at all different times at all different days throughout the week that gather to open up this book to talk about the person of Jesus. You cannot say, I believe in Jesus, but not the church. Let me process this for a second. Because I spend a ton of time, I, I, I run a real estate business, I'm constantly in our community. Um, I like people. If you know me at all, you know that I'm a people person. And so when I'm out, I'm just talking to everybody. And I have gospel conversations with people all the time, mostly about their lives. Mostly I'm just listening to their story. I'm asking them questions, how are you? Tell me about your family, where are you from? And as we're getting to know somebody, I'm listening to their story and I'm sharing my story in light of the story that they're sharing with me. And and so as I'm listening, I'm hearing these things and often when it comes to church, what I hear is I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. And I want you to know this morning that you cannot separate the two. Why? Because all throughout Scripture, we see that it is God's intention, it is God's expectation that we live in community with one another. Matthew 18, 5 through 17. If you have a pen, if you'd like to take notes, just write these down because I'm going to go through them quick. But Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus shares his expectations for us to be a part of a local church family. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. Paul is assuming that people are inside or outside of a church family. Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, Acts 20. Jesus is exhorting and encouraging the church to appoint leaders over particular flocks that believers should submit to. This is God's intention for his family, for his people, that we live in community with one another. We can't say that we have a personal relationship with Jesus outside of his family. And if you don't like being a part of his family now, what are you going to do for all of eternity? Because that's all we're going to be doing, is worshiping Jesus together in community. Now, I know for sure that most people in this room have been hurt by someone who professes faith with their mouth, but then denies Jesus by their lifestyle. I know that for sure, and I want you to know I am so sorry, but people are sinners, 
There is nobody in this room that is perfect. And if you think that it's you, guess what? It's not. We are broken people. Every person that we see in Scripture that is not Jesus is a forgiven failure. And so I want you to know and understand that that it's not a surprise that you might have been hurt by someone inside of a church. But the church is God's family. And God calls us to be united within his family. God gives us leadership in local churches, membership to local churches, participation in local churches. In fact, when we talk about this this idea of broken people gathering together, Jesus himself addresses this in Mark 2, verse 17, where he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have this expectation that the church is a group of perfect people gathering together and that you're just going to join that group of perfect people, you will always be disappointed. We are a group of forgiven failures saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And when we as forgiven sinners gather, mistakes are made, but 1 Timothy 3.5 we become what God says is a pillar and buttress of truth for the world around us. You know what that is? A beacon of hope. Think of like this lighthouse that is calling attention to something. That is who the church is. Hope for the hopeless, light and darkness, linking arms together for his glory. Here's the picture that throughout this series I want us to have in mind, and this is, this is a big deal because Because I want us to understand that when God calls us to live in community with one another, he has a picture in mind. And through nature, he gives us these amazing analogies that we can see the representation of what this looks like. Anybody know what a redwood tree is? Largest trees that are out there. I mean, the coastal redwoods are massive. They can often span over 300 feet tall. I mean, this is a picture of the beauty of these massive, massive trees. And I think that we would have this perception that a tree that is over 300 feet tall would have super deep roots, correct? In fact, they don't. They spread their roots outwards close to 60 to 80 feet wide. And guess what they do? They interlock with one another, creating an organism of a network of these trees. You know what's crazy about this? I mean, this is nuts, is that not only do they support each other when the wind is blowing and when the storms are coming, like they hold on to each other's roots as one big system. But also, if there's a tree that is is suffering and needs certain nutrients, it's through those networks of roots that they share and they begin to share what they have. This is such a beautiful picture of what God has designed the church to be. That we as a people would interlock our lives with one another and support one another and help one another in times of need. Even what what, uh, David was just sharing here, that we are the church, we are the family, and all of us at some point, all of us, all of us, all of us at some point will need the church. All of us at some point will need that community. It's not just a bunch of people that have their stuff together that are helping those that are less fortunate. That's not it. Every single person in this room that is plugged in 
to the life of the family will need something at some point because we are not perfect. That's what the church is meant to be. So one of the most disheartening things that I come across is when people go through a really difficult season in life and they're struggling in their marriage and they're struggling in their finances and they're struggling with all this stuff and then they spend months trying to figure it out and get their stuff together and then they kind of put the pieces back together and then they come to me and they're like, yeah, pastor, we just came out of a really hard season for the last six months. I'm like, where were you six months ago? Why would you not think that when all of this started going down that you wouldn't come to the family that God has called you to to wrap their arms around you? We are a prideful people. We want to do it on our own and figure it out, but that's not what God calls us to in his word. So you know what we have to do? We have to stop it. Stop being prideful, stop being arrogant, trying to be self-made people and dive into what God calls us to. So how do we do this? Well. How do we live bold in community? Paul shows us three ways right here in the first three verses. Ready to dive in? Excited? All right. Verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you. How do we live bold in community with one another? We, We be thankful for one another. I know that that sounds like super elementary. You're like, oh, that, that, that's, that's it? Like, no, 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 we are thankful for one another. It's not easy being constantly thankful for people. You wanna know why? Because people inconvenience my life. And don't you judge me, I'll judge you right back. <laughs> we, we are constantly trying to remove ourselves from situations because people are hard to deal with sometimes. We're natural finger pointers. I mean, if you're married or have kids, I mean, you know, like, there are times that, like, you just want to sit and do nothing, and then you've got all these people tugging on you. Mom, can I get an amen? Right? Not only got your kids tugging on you, you got your husband tugging on you, like, everybody in the world needs your attention. And we're constantly pointing our fingers at other people, saying that they're the problem. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 7, 13, when he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We so easily see what's wrong in other people. And that's where our marriage fights stem from, our work problems, our neighborhood issues. We just think everybody else is dumb. But when we live in a state of thankfulness for one another, it changes things. When we turn our minds and our hearts and our attention away from the things that we don't like to the things that God has gifted those people and the things that we're thankful for, it changes marriages, it changes relationships. And I think another hindrance to being thankful for others is that what we said before is that we're prideful people and we like the attention. I mean, if you're a youth in here, where are my youth at? Youth, college, young professionals. Um, it, is, it is in your DNA, and this is something that, like, if you're studying uh, different uh, sets of people, like different age groups, um, it's in your DNA to actually desire to make a difference. If you're a youth right now, if you're a college student, and you're a young professional, it's in your DNA, in your generation, that you desire to make a difference. One of the problems to that, though, is that you want you at the center of that making a difference. 
It's a selfie generation. It's just how you grew up. And so you not only want to make a difference in the world around you, but you want the camera pointed at you seeing you make a difference in the world around you. And all the older people are laughing at you right now. They do the same thing. They just don't know how to use the phone to take the selfie. I'm getting a lot of... In Philippians 2.3, Paul is writing again to a group of people and he's saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You wanna know what the Greek word for nothing is? Nothing. (laughs) Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant in yourself. I I actually noticed this shift in my own life when I started having kids. Um, I like to be the center of attention sometimes. And growing up in college, I like to be the center of attention. And then, and then you kind of, you know, like to have accolades and you like people celebrating you. But then you become a dad. And the camera does shift to where now in life, like I'm looking around and I'm seeing these beautiful landscapes and these fun things that are going on. And I don't want the camera pointed at me anymore. I want to point it at my kids. And I know that it's like, well, they're your kids. But no, there's a different shift from you being at the center to something else being at the center. That's what this idea of being thankful for one another comes from. That's what Paul is saying. We give thanks to God always for all of you. He is living in a state of thankfulness for people. He knows how people are messing up. He's hearing reports how, how people, because later when we get later in this, this like letter that he's writing, there are some things that he's going to challenge the church in. He's going to say, hey, you're doing these things wrong. That doesn't change his thankfulness for these people. Often in marriage, we can fix and focus our eyes so much on the stuff that annoys us and forget to be thankful for what had drawn us together. Often in relationships with people, with friends, with family, with coworkers, we are so fixed and focused on the things that they do to, to hinder our lives and our comfortability and we stop being thankful that God has placed them intentionally in our lives to have our roots linked together so that we can pursue him together and grow into this large beacon of hope for the world around us. Thankfulness is at the core of this. Thankfulness for one another will lead us to be others focused. I love what the pastor and author Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says it so simply sometimes. He was a big man and had a big booming voice and He says this, the surest road to our own happiness is to seek the good of others. Seek the good of others. You know, if we're constantly thanking God for one another, we will love one another more. And then we go on, rest of verse two. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Here's the second way that Paul points out. First is be thankful for one another. Second one is pray for one another. Pray for one another. Prayer, let's talk about what prayer is for a quick second. Prayer draws us closer to God. Prayer is a way for us to interact and have an intimate, real relationship 
with the God of the universe, with the King of kings, with the Lord of lords. And when you pray, don't just pray to God the Father. Pray to God the Son. Pray to God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Pray, like pray engaging with God. It draws us closer to God and closeness to God's heart will lead us to love others as he does. Did you catch that? When we're praying for others more, when we're praying for those around us, it draws us closer to God, and being closer to God unites our heart with his heart, and it will cause his love to overflow out of our hearts for those around us. I love reading the Apostle Paul because he prays so well for other people. He's constantly praying for other people. I mean, he's sitting in prison most of the time, no one around in darkness. I get that. But God invites us to have times of solitude in our lives too. He invites us to set aside time in our day to get away and intentionally be in relationship with him. This takes intentionality. This takes time. And for most people, I would just have to say this is not natural because we tend to fill those times with scrolling through other people's lives. We tend to fill that time through scrolling through news articles, putting on whatever the news channel is. Like, and we, we do it under the banner of wanting to be in the know and see what's going on in the world. But all of that takes time away from spending time with God. And so we have to be intentional and take time. You know, here, here's a, just a quick tip. If you want to pray for, for those in your life more, in the morning, send a text message to three to five people and just say, how can I pray for you today? I, I know that that sounds so elementary, but I do this intentionally three, four days out of the week where I get up in the morning and there are just some people that are already on my mind, already on my heart. I don't really know why. And so I just send a quick text and I just say, hey, how can I pray for you today? And you know what that does? That causes throughout my day, because most people don't respond right away, um, it causes throughout my day to get these like random pings of people saying, hey, pray for this. Maybe it's them specifically, maybe it's for a family member, maybe it's for a situation that they're in or a situation they know somebody else is in. And what it does is it throughout my day just causes these little moments where I stop and pray for those around me. I know that that sounds simple, but it's an easy thing to do. And you could even, catch this, set an alarm on your phone that is labeled pray for others and then copy and paste, how can I pray for you? It becomes very simple. Why? Because God calls us and he calls us to be intentional with this. And then it becomes a pattern in our lives, a discipline in our lives. If we are praying for one another, we will love one another more. Here's the last thing we see. Let's look at verse three. In his prayers, as he's giving thanks to God, what is he doing? He's remembering before God the Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing in this moment? As these people are reading this letter, he's encouraging them. He's encouraging their hearts. So we are thankful for one another, we pray for one another, but then we also encourage one another. Going back to like us being a type of people that see what's wrong in others, we become a very cynical people. 
It's just, it's just a natural progression. As we're constantly seeing what's wrong in those around us, we become very cynical to the world around us. But the picture here and what we're seeing Paul do, and he constantly does, is it's like a cheerleader coach. It's someone who's constantly looking for the good in other people and encouraging what is good and best in those other people. You can do it. I believe in you. Keep going. Like, that's the type of thing that Paul is doing here naturally that God calls us to as the community of faith to do for one another, is to constantly encourage one another. Husbands and wives, let me talk to you for a second because this is a big thing in marriage. Do you know one of the hardest people in your life to encourage is? Your spouse. Studies show it. Uh, people that, that end up coming and, and asking for counseling, it, it, it proves it, is that somehow, in some way, the person you are supposed to be the closest to is the person you struggle the most with encouraging. I don't know why that is, but I do know that that's a tool of the devil. We are called to encourage one another. Do you know often the church can be a breeding ground for people to just be complain about everything? I don't like the color of the chairs. I don't like the color of the walls. I don't like this. I don't like that. Instead of using the voice that God has given you to encourage the world around you. But God constantly, constantly tells us through his word and many authors in his word to encourage one another. There's actually over 20 specific verses. I mean, when I say specific, I mean that are commands for us to encourage one another. It's out of an overflow of relationship with God that we begin to encourage those. Often we can see ourselves in such a cynical way that it then translates into us being cynical for those around us. We have to believe what God says about us, that we are seen, that we are known, that we are loved, that our identity is as a son and daughter of the king. You know what they call a son and a daughter of a king? A prince or a princess. And I think most often, most of us don't look in the mirror in the morning and remember that we are a princess or a prince of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And because we don't see ourselves in that light, then therefore we don't see others in that light. But if we begin to change the lens in which we view things, change the lens in which we view how God views us as his son and daughter, and then view others as his son and daughter, we can begin to encourage one another. Spurgeon speaks on this too, and this is what he says. If you had God's praise in your mouth, you would not criticize others so often. Your encouragement should be a magnet that draws others to Jesus. If we are encouraging one another, we will love one another more. So what is our response to this? I'm, I'm gonna blow you away with this because I really worked hard at putting together this, these phrases. Ready, ready? The three things that we just talked about. That's the response. Profound, right? I don't know how I can get any more applicable in a response to what do we do with this? What do we do? We do it. <laughs> we actually leave this place and live this out as the family of God. We pray for one another. We are thankful for one another. And we encourage one another. Like, 
be intentional with this. Set, set aside time to do this. Make lists, make notes. I said it before, but you can set up alarms in your phone throughout all times of the day to give you little keys. Um, I, uh, Hudson and I were meeting the other day, and we were talking about wanting to be more thankful people. And so we talked about challenging one another, and we said, hey, let's set an alarm on our phone that says thankfulness. And it's a thankfulness alarm. It goes off on my phone every, 9.30 every night, because that's usually when I'm doing nothing. Right? Just Netflixing or you know, something or watching something or just sitting there doing nothing. And it says thankfulness and it, stop, it causes me to stop. One, because I have to shut off my phone because it's annoying. But two, to be thankful. And I start thinking about my kids and my wife and you and the people around me and my neighbors. And I start being more thankful. Like we have tools at our disposal to do this. What else can we do? Go get a dry erase marker. Some place that you go often in your life is your bathroom mirror. Write a prayer list with a dry erase marker on your mirror. Write prayer, and then write some people's names. Like, this is just a simple, easy tool that we as the body of Christ can utilize to be thankful and to encourage people more and to pray for people more. Um, Send texts, make post-it notes. Like, there's so many ways that we can be thankful for other people. I think often we are more intentional. I think often we are more intentional with watching the next episode of the shows that we like than we are with doing these things for the body of Christ and for those around us. And for those that are yet to be in the body of Christ, but God is wooing and calling to be in relationship with him. Because God doesn't just call us and invite us to encourage and pray for and um, be thankful for the church people, but he's also called us to the community around us, the people around us that don't know him yet, but through you and through your prayers and your thankfulness and your encouragement will be uh, drawn into relationship with Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And so we're intentional with these things. Why do we need to encourage and pray for and be thankful for one another? Well, because our roots are intertwined with one another, and it's how we support one another. So this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to respond to this by taking communion. Communion is this absolutely beautiful thing, sacrament, that God gives us in Scripture for us to remember what he has done on a regular basis. We usually do this the first week out of the month, and sometimes we, we do it throughout the month, but what communion is, is when Jesus sat with his disciples on his last hours here, he took a piece of bread and he broke it, and he was using this as an example. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we gather together and we take bread and we eat it, we're supposed to remember that he went to the cross to purchase every single heart and soul and mind out of the bondage of slavery and sin into a life and a life abundantly. And so we take the bread and as we eat it, we remember what he has done for us on the cross. And then there's the juice, the blood that has been poured out for us. And so we take the bread, we dip it in the cup, and we remember that his blood was poured out for us to purchase our identity as his sons and his daughters. And so this is what I would like to do at this time. As we respond to these things, Miguel can come back on up. As we respond to these things, this is what I would ask you to do. Is take some time, a minute, two minutes, before coming up and approaching the tables. There's tables here, there's tables in the middle, and I think there's one straight in the back. Before you move, 
I want you to ask God to put some names on your heart and your mind. Maybe it's a mentor that has shared the gospel with you. Maybe it's someone who's discipled you in your life or someone that you have discipled. Maybe uh, it's a, a family member that has encouraged you or someone that has, has played a huge role in helping you come to know Jesus. I'm just going to encourage you right now, this is okay to do in church. I want you to text them. Send them a message. And if you don't have a phone that can text, write down something somewhere to remind you to do it. And when you get home, write them a handwritten letter and send it to them. Because I think that we need to start this. If we don't do these things in the midst of here, we can very quickly leave here and forget about this stuff. So take some time to remember and be thankful for those that God has placed in your life to help draw you into relationship. And they might be sitting right next to you, so you may be just texting the person next to you. But encourage those that have encouraged you. And then I also want you to think about some people that don't know Jesus. Some people that don't have a personal, intimate, interactive relationship with Jesus. And I want you, as you're approaching these tables, to have their names on your heart and your mind and bring them to the feet of Jesus and lay them at his feet, asking the Lord, asking Jesus to woo them into relationship with himself, to transform their hearts and souls and minds for his glory. And then lastly, when we approach the tables, we do this for our hearts. The Bible actually says to us and warns us not to approach these tables in an unworthy manner, which means we want to make sure that we are repenting and believing. Repentance is turning away from our sin, and believing is trusting that he has covered all. Not part, not a little bit, all. And so before you get up, send some encouraging messages to those that you know. Bring to the tables people that need to know Jesus and their, their names on your mind and present them before the throne room of God. And then for your own beautiful, amazing remembrance, partake in these things knowing that Jesus has paid it all for you. Can I pray for us? Father, you are a good, good God. Thank you for giving us an example in Paul who has discipled us to know you and love you with all of our hearts. That he has lived out an example imperfectly, but he has lived out an example through the power of your Holy Spirit for us to model. And so God, I pray that as we approach these tables, we would do so not in an unworthy manner, but in a manner worthy of your good news because of what Jesus has done for us. Nothing that we have done, but everything that Jesus has done. And I pray right now you would bring to mind people that have encouraged us along the way, and that we would send them texts thanking them. And that there would be people on our hearts that we are constantly praying for to come to know you so that their lives may be brought from death to life. God, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.